Chapter 3, verses 7 through 12 for us. This is the word of the Lord. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and your contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all the nations will call you blessed. For you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. This is the word of God. Please be seated. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for this beautiful morning you've given us, and we thank you for the gift of being here in your presence with you. And, uh, we thank you that you constantly remind us that you are faithful and that you are gracious and that you love us. And uh, that is present in every part of the scriptures, Lord, even books that can be challenging and uh, heavy like the book of Malachi, that your, your prophet faithfully heralds the gospel of grace and mercy and faithfulness. And I pray as we talk about this challenging subject this morning that we would uh, come away with a clearer understanding of how much you love us and how you delight in having us respond in gratitude to that love and what that really means for us in our lives. We pray that the meditations of our hearts and the words of my mouth would be pleasing in your sight, our Lord and our Redeemer. Amen. Uh, some of you may know this about me, some of you may not. I worked in the casino industry here in California for about 15 years as a uh, dealer. And um, I don't, there's 99% of that industry I don't miss, but I do miss dealing on a craps game, which is a total sidebar. It's super exciting, but... One of the things that's really bizarre about the casino industry is that you see people in a light that you won't really see them in many other parts of their life. And uh, it's kind of a spiritual axiom. If, if you're familiar with the Gospels at all, Jesus talked about money and people's relationship with wealth a lot. And it's a spiritual axiom that if you want to know what people's perspective is on wealth and money, you'll see it come out when they're around um, what they treasure, whether that's finances or other things. And in the casino business, that was just magnified. And uh, one story um, from my career in that industry uh, really came to me as I was thinking about this text this morning and that I was dealing blackjack to a guy in the high limit room and people um, would go in there and um, they'd spend extraordinary amounts of money just to be entertained. And I was dealing blackjack to a gentleman one afternoon and he was sitting there uh, with another woman who was playing with him and he wasn't having good luck at all. He was losing quite a bit of money. And, and uh, he had all this cash in front of him. He had about $250,000 that he started playing with and he was on a steady slide towards losing it all. And towards the end, he was getting really, really frustrated and the woman kept trying to encourage him and cheer him up. And at one point, she literally said, let's pray and ask God to help you win this hack's hand. I was like, 
I can't wait to see what happens now. And uh, he was so angry when she said that. And she was like, well, what's the matter? Don't you believe in God? And he's like, yeah, I believe in God. I'm a Christian, but God doesn't have anything to do with my money. And then he shoved up $167,000 and lost it. And he got up and he walked away. He didn't say a word. And um, his, his statement about his money just stuck with me. I was like... Man, he just learned a painful lesson. We're going to talk about wealth today. I, I suspect that Chuck and Rob are angry with me because they somehow wrangled me into doing the text on tithing and talking to you about what you do with your finances and your time and your treasures and your talents. And we're going to be talking about our relationship with money this morning. And that's, that's a very uncomfortable subject for a lot of people. Um, this particular passage that we read is a passage that's uh, misused and abused in uh, heretical teachings by false teachers all, all over the world uh, in the church. And it's, it's a way that, that people have taken advantage of God's people in generosity. So it's a, it's a text that's been mishandled a lot. And then there's also our own stuff. This is one of those passages, you know, whether we like it or not, we bring all kinds of stuff to scripture when we read it. And when we read passages about money, we bring all kinds of preconceived ideas. We read scripture through a certain lens and we hear certain things. And so before I even start this sermon, I want to kind of clear the table for us mentally and emotionally, okay? Uh, first, this church in the past year has exhibited a generosity that has been supernatural in nature. When we started at the beginning of this year, we had no idea... Uh, that the shutdowns were coming, what the pandemic would be like. Uh, we just knew that we were a young church community with an ambitious budget because we had an ambitious mission and we prayed and hoped that God would help us achieve those goals if that was his will. And you guys have been so faithful uh, in your giving that um, we not only, um, we are in the black, we met our budget, which is something we didn't even plan on doing. Uh, when we set our budget goals for this year, what we hoped was to steadily spend what we had as a reserve over a long period of time and then see what God would do with that. And we exceeded that goal to where we met our budget this past year, and that's a result of your faithful giving. So this sermon I'm about to preach isn't, I'm not finger wagging, okay? This isn't, a, this isn't me saying, hey, we're not doing good enough, we need to do better. Uh, it's also not, to it's not meant to make anybody feel guilty. We're going to talk about some challenging things. And it's not meant to make anybody feel ashamed or guilty about what they do with their time, their gifts, or their talents. But really what we're going to talk about is how difficult it can be for you and I to be generous in response to God and his people. And that applies to every one of us. So just remember, no matter what happens in the next few minutes, that I'm the nice pastor. Rob always says the mean things. And that I love you, okay? <laughs> Uh, just to calibrate real quick, if you've been with us for the series of Malachi, this is a short book, but it's real heavy. Um, Lydia and I were talking about that not too long ago. This is one of those prophetical books that's got some real heavy truths in it, and it can be really challenging for us. This one in particular is the fifth out of six disputes or kind of charges that God's bringing against his people. But he's doing it as an act of love towards them to help them understand how far they've drifted away from him. And so the main idea that I want us to consider for a few minutes in this passage is that God calls us to turn away from selfishness and be blessed because he is just that generous to us. 
so that God calls us to turn away from our selfishness and be blessed because he is just that generous to us. Excuse me. And we'll, we'll consider three things in light of that. First, that God turns us away from our selfishness. Uh, second, that God's generosity is the source of all our blessings. And then third, that God frees us to be generous people. So the first point, that it's only God's generosity that turns us away from his selfishness. Uh, in this short passage, God brings a very serious charge against his people. Uh, in verse 8, he says, Will man rob God, and yet you are robbing me? And just a little bit of context can be helpful. If you're not familiar with the Old Testament, how uh, the nation of Israel lived in relationship with God, one of the things that God commanded his people to do is he set all these laws in place to help them. And one of them was called the tithing law. And the, the word tithe literally means tenth. So the tithes were the tenths. And that was a, a means that God gave the people to bring uh, their crops and bring them to him and give them as an act of gratitude and worship. But it was also mandated by law. Uh, and God set up the structure where they would bring that tithe to him and it would be used for all these important things in the life of Israel. Uh, first, it would be given to the, the priesthood and the priesthood would carry out all the responsibilities uh, in worship. Uh, it was given to take care of the temple and so the temple upkeep would be um, funded by the tithes that the people would bring. Uh, there was also different types of, uh, types of authorings and tithes that were given by the people. Once every several years, there'd be an offering that was made, and the nation of Israel would take it, the priests would take it, and they'd use it for the poor and the needy and the oppressed. So the fatherless, the widow, uh, the sojourner, the foreigners, there would be funds for them when they were in need. So it was a way that God's people would take care of the outsiders in society. Uh, and we can have a sympathetic view with uh, the struggle of God's people. You know, the story of God's people is always given to us to help us understand how we identify and we are like them. It's one of my favorite parts. It always calibrates me to the grand story in Scripture. Uh, and so we can be sympathetic with them in that. But it also is a cautionary tale. It's given to us as a warning uh, to help us understand what happens when we walk away from God and walk away from the design he has for us as his people. And so the charge is really instructive in that sense. When he says how, uh, the response is very instructive in that sense. When the people say, how have we robbed you and how shall we return? It's almost like they're the perpetual teenager. And if you're a parent, you've probably had this experience with your kids. Or if you're a teenager like I was, I raged against the machine from the minute that I hit puberty until I was like 22. So when I read this, I'm like, I get that. You know, the, the indignant response of like, how have we robbed you? How do we return to you? We're right here. And, you know, there's a sense in which the people of Israel really were feeling indignant about the charge that God was bringing against them. And, you know, it's not something that was new. If you look in verse 7, God says, uh, he makes a statement uh, about their past. He says, from the days of your fathers, you have done this. So they had been doing it forever. And that's kind of a cue that this isn't something that they just started doing. Uh, it's indicative of the reality that they thought that their wealth was theirs to do whatever they pleased with, and they had been doing that for quite a long time. Usually, our descent into stubborn sin and rebellion against God is not an outright uh, frontal assault. If you look back at sins in your own life and the way you've struggled, they usually start with something small, and then that small sin is something that we get used to doing, and then it grows in our life until suddenly you'll find ourselves feeling alienated from God. And in a sense, that's what the people during Malachi's day 
had done as well. There's also circumstances that can make us sympathize with them. If you notice, God talks about a famine being on the land. And when he says, if you return to me, I'll remove that famine. And so there was all these societal and real world pressures that they were facing uh, that would make them feel like they were justified in not giving God their tithes. The irony in that is that God brought the famine to try and bring them back, but they were bucking and pushing against that. Underneath that, in a spiritual sense, relationally, the purpose of the tithe uh, was given to them so they could ultimately recognize that everything they had and everything that they were as a people was the result of God's generosity to them. Uh, And it would be a reminder for them of God's love and care for them as his covenant people. And you know, this isn't just about them withholding some of their tithes here. Uh, There's other places in the Old Testament, if you're familiar with God's story with Israel in the Old Testament, Amos chapter 4, the people were actually bringing all their sacrifices, but then they were oppressing the needy and the poor by not taking care of them. And so God lays the same charge at them while they're bringing all their sacrifices, but neglecting the needy among them. Uh, in both those instances, what God's highlighting is it, it, it wasn't about the ritual that they're engaging in or how they're engaging it. It was about the heart of the people that were entering into the practice with God. And so the tithe law, although it was a law and it was mandated for their own good, was really a means for the people to show God that he was most important. It was a public display of saying God is the most valuable thing to the nation of Israel, to his people. And furthermore, by doing that, they would acknowledge and be reminded that their needs could only be met by God in their relationship with him. It was to be their very best, the best of their crops, the best of what they had, the best of what God gave to them, uh, given to God first. And in that, they would acknowledge his ultimate worth. The people in Malachi's day faced what we could say is a very modern problem for you and I too. It's a problem that you and I face all the time. Uh, And that's a worldview and a philosophy about life and wealth and uh, resources that ultimately rejects finding fulfillment in our creator and instead falls for the alternative of using those things to meet our own needs and finding fulfillment in the things that he gives us. and what that leads to is a lifestyle. We see this all around us, especially in the West. I think it's very prevalent in, in America today. What we see is a selfish uh, perspective on acquiring and possessing things and use them to satisfy every desire that our heart produces. And you see that in modern society. Um, the world around us is constantly promoting the idea that what you have and what you acquire really is for you to use any way that you want and to meet every desire that your heart produces. But the longer that you walk with the Lord and study scripture, what do you see? That God tells us, Calvin said that the heart is an idol factory. It's constantly producing these desires that can lead us astray. And so when we use our resources, what God gives us, whether it's our wealth or otherwise, to try and satisfy all those desires, we find ourselves on a hamster wheel where we're constantly finding new things, getting new things, trying to use them to fill our own desires, experiencing the disappointment and heartbreak that that brings, and then being disillusioned. And a lot of the times at the bottom of the barrel, we blame God. And the people in Malachi's day were doing that in a sense. They were indignant, justified in their anger in their own minds, angry at God for making such an accusation with them. 
There's a couple of tragic flaws in that view, though, uh, both for them and for you and I that I think we fall prey to. Uh, First, in falling into that perspective about life and what we have, we fail to acknowledge that we're truly not the owners of all that that we possess. Um, And you see that everywhere in Scripture. You know, it's funny. It's so easy to think that on any given day of your life. But when you read Scripture, you see that everywhere. Psalm 89 says, uh, the psalmist declares, the heaven are yours, speaking to the Lord, the heaven are yours, the earth is also yours, the world and all that that is in it, you have founded them. Uh, The New Testament, um, in speaking about the supremacy of Jesus, Colossians 1.16 literally says that all things have been created by God, uh, through God, and for God. So what we see is that the Christian life is like this, it's this ball work. Our relationship with God is meant to be this, um, our relationship with God is meant to be this means to help us avoid the pitfalls of going to the things that he's blessed us with to find satisfaction instead of relying on him. The entire Christian life is about learning to live in satisfaction and dependence upon our creator as opposed to the things that he gives us to enjoy. And also to, to have a radical rearrangement in how we view the things that he's given us. And that means that when we read scripture, what do we see? It, 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 it doesn't mean that we um, are able to do whatever we want with what God brings into our lives. It means that he's entrusted us as stewards. And a steward really is simply just a manager. Uh, But it's also a manager who's able to enjoy and use things in a way that both honors the person who's given it to us to steward and also blesses us and honors him. And so God constantly is rearranging our hearts and the way we live our lives to be stewards of what he's given us, uh, not to be overlords and to use it for our own selfish aims. Uh, The second pitfall is simply this. That no matter how hard we try uh, and no matter what we do, we can never be satisfied in anything other than God. Uh, We can never fill the God-sized hole that every one of us has in our hearts with anything outside of Jesus. Um, God has designed us by our very nature. We are people who are made in his image and we are people who are designed to live in a relationship with him. And until we are able to be reconciled with that, we live with this God-sized hole that can't be filled with anything else. But that leads to God's kindness and his generosity. You know, we could know both of those things. I've had the own experience in my life where I have tried to fill that God-sized hole with all manner of things, with money, success, relationships, sex, all manner of things, and it's just a gaping wound that is never filled until I realized that it was only Jesus that could fulfill that. And that's where God's kindness really rushes into our lives. Uh, The longer that you walk with the Lord, you realize that trajectory is everything in the Christian faith. Trajectory is everything. So God's kindness and mercy is this whole display of him reaching down into our lives and pulling us up out of the muck and the mire of our own sinfulness, right? Uh, The very act of God saving us is God taking on human flesh, the Son of God, becoming man and living among us, doing what we're unable to do and then saving us from our plight, from sin and death and the penalty of our own sins. It's only God's mercy and kindness that makes a relationship with him possible. And in that, it's that kindness that draws us back towards him. Uh, The word repent, there's a Greek word that's used and uh, it 
it's translated as repent. What it literally means is a change of mind. But that's not just an intellectual affair that God calls us to enter into it with him. It's really a change of mind. It's a change of heart that results in a change in action, a change in how we live and how we exist as beings. And that happens by the work of God's spirit in us. And uh, we see that here as well with the people of Malachi. God is using two things in a very sweet and tender way to draw them back. Uh, First, he's using the consequences of their own sins. Uh, He's allowing them to experience the effects of the famine. If you're familiar with Old Testament scriptures, one of the ways that God would discipline his children is he would allow them to experience famines when they broke his covenant laws. And they were in the midst of that. Uh, Verse 11 talks about uh, the devourer. He says, I'll remove the devourer from the land. And he's talking about pests who would be eating their crops. And you know, that's actually really like striking word picture of what we do when we try to look to other things to fulfill the needs that only God can fulfill for us. Those things end up devouring our spiritual lives as well. But it's really God's patience and kindness that draws us back to him. That's exactly what Paul says in Romans. In Romans 2, 7, he says, he's speaking to self-righteous Jews when he writes chapter 2. And he says, do you not know that it's actually God's kindness that's meant to draw you into repentance? And we see that here in Malachi. Uh, If you were here for the first week or you've read this book, in the first chapter, in the second verse, what's the very first thing that God says to them? The very first statement that he makes, he says, I have loved you. And he doesn't say it like he's an angry spouse. And say, I've loved you. It's like a gentle father. He says, I have loved you. And what does he say in the text this morning? In verse 7, he says, return to me. Return to me and I'll return to you. It's his gentleness and his kindness drawing them back in. Uh, if you know me, you know that I love uh, the ocean. I love saltwater fishing. And I love fishing for big tuna. And the bigger the fish, the more complicated the gear gets. And one of the things that's really a marvel of modern technology is these big tuna reels, and they have what's called a drag system on them. And what it is is that you set the reel in a way in that when the fish eats your uh, lure or your bait and tries to swim off, he experiences the pressure that that drag system creates. And so that drag wears the fish down. And so you leverage all this pressure on the fish, all with the goal of getting him to the boat. And you just wear him down with that pressure, slow and steady, and the drag system just pulls and pulls and pulls and tires him out until he surrenders. And you know, God's mercy and kindness is designed to do the very same thing with you and I when we're going into sin away from him. It's meant to wear us down to the point where we will just surrender to his mercy. And there's a lot of times when we experience that and we think God's being so unkind, God's being so cruel to me, but it's all meant to draw us back to him so we can experience the grace and the kindness that he has for us. And that leads to the second point, that God's generosity is not only God's kindness to us, but it's the source of all our blessings in life. Uh, God goes even further in this text. He doesn't just say, look, come back to me. Uh, Remember, I have loved you. And he goes on to say, look, if you return to me, then I will bless you. I will remove all the things that are troubling you and causing you difficulty. Uh, Verses 10 and 11, as I opened up, they're some of the most misused in scripture. I mean, one of the oldest hustles in American Christianity is the prosperity gospel. And these verses right here are among the most abused by false teachers in the church. 
10 and 11, it's where God promises. He says, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Oftentimes what false teachers will do is they'll use this as a way to tell people, hey, you, you can enter into this commercial agreement with God. If you bless him, he will bless you. He is going to make it rain in your life. If you want to level up in Christianity, brothers and sisters, this is the way to do it. You keep writing those checks. You keep acting in faith. If your faith is strong enough, God is going to make it rain for you. This is it. Look, he even says, test me. And you know, they mishandle the scripture in a very tragic way. What they do is they present this as if this is a commercial proposition that God is offering his people and he's not. What he's telling people that this is a promise. These verses are a covenantal promise to God's people. God says, test my covenant promises. If they return to him with a heart of repentance, trusting in his word, trusting in his promises to them, that he would restore them. And so he says, bring the tithe into the storehouse. The curse that you're experiencing, the famine that you're in the midst of will be removed and I will restore you. He says, put me to the test and see if my word is true. See if you can trust me. You know, a lot of times we read this, we can read this with a lens and think, okay, this is the point where God's angry. And so this is kind of like, you know, when your parents are mad at you, you know, look, Jesus loves you and I love you, but don't test me. It's not like that. He's saying, look, test me. I want you to know that I'm faithful and kind and merciful to you. Put my word to the test. In doing that, God is giving them, he gives us the opportunity when he calls us to put his faithful promises to the test. He's giving us the opportunity to remember and acknowledge that we are simply stewards. But when we're stewards of what he gives us, we're free to enjoy them in more ways that we can imagine. And we also acknowledge that he's the one that truly owns all that we possess. And that's not just a heartless commercial exchange that we enter into with God. Uh, it's not just a business agreement. But he calls us to do that according to his word and more importantly from hearts that have seen and experienced his kindness and his mercy to us. You see, God is calling the people in Malachi's day and you and I to repent and be freed from treating our wealth like idols. And that's so he could bless us with something greater than that. So he could give us a greater gift. And that's so that we could see and experience that he's the only true source of all of our blessings and that we can only be satisfied in him. Uh, in the same way that God calls us to evaluate our perspectives on our treasures, he calls us to evaluate how we live in relationship with him in all the other areas of our lives because that shapes how we think about what we have and how we use it. Uh, that frees us to reevaluate and see that whatever we have and enjoy, we view in the surpassing goodness of what we have in Jesus. And it reminds us that we have even greater reasons to be generous. Uh, and that's not just with your money. You know, a lot of the times I think we talk about this text and we talk about uh, tithing only in terms of giving of money. And, and for a lot of people, I think that's the easiest thing to do. And I, just heart to heart for us, I think in some ways that's probably easier for us. We are a church that excels in financial giving. I, I marvel at our faithfulness in financial giving. But I think that we're a church that's challenged in how we give 
of our service and our time with other people. For us, that's been an area where God's been very gracious in helping us grow. And particularly in this year, as I said at the beginning of the sermon, I have seen us explode in service, explode in giving in ways that has just been so encouraging for me, knowing all of you and seeing how much it costs you to give of your time and your gifts and your talents. But see, in God's mercy, he frees us to reevaluate how we, our relationship with those things constantly. Not out of compulsion, not out of guilt, not out of shame, not because your pastor preaches a sermon and makes you feel guilty or awkward about it, but because of the surpassing goodness that you have in Jesus. In the life of Christ, you and I see the greatest act of generosity on God's behalf towards us, right? Uh, And in response to that, we repent of our desires to hoard all that God has given us. We're freed of those desires that drag us away from him. Because what we see is that in him, we can trust in the better promises that he's made real for us in Jesus. If you're familiar with any part of scripture, you're probably familiar with John 3.16, that God gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him can have eternal life. But what does that mean? You know, we see that at football games and stadiums, and a lot of people are like, what does that mean, though? I don't know what it means that God gave his son for me, and I'm not even sure I asked for that. What does that mean for me? For you and I as Christians, that's almost like a sweeping summary statement of all these beautiful things, all these beautiful treasures that we have in God already. Uh, I had Chuck read that really long gospel passage this morning out of Ephesians. It's all one long sentence in Greek. And I had him read that because it's this beautiful, sweeping, panoramic view of everything that you already possess. And for us to look at Scripture and to think about what we already have is the proper way to approach the question of what should we give, is to ask what what we already have, right? So what do we have? What does it mean that God gave His only begotten Son to you and I? In Ephesians 1 through 3 through 14, as Chuck highlighted so well, it says that God chose us before the foundation of the world. I mean, that one just blows my mind. Before I even hit the planet, God chose me. Before he created anything, he chose you. He chose you by name, knowing you, with all your baggage, all your mess, everything you would do, all the, all the messes you would make. He said, you, I want you. And I'll give my son for you. We're adopted as his children. He brings us right into his family. Jesus is now our older brother. We're not just people who are hanging out. We're not latchkey kids who hang out on the doorstep of the kingdom of God. We have a seat at the banquet table. We are part of the family of God. and He is our heavenly father. We've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. What does that mean? That means by the sacrifice that Jesus made in his own body and blood, he has saved us. We have peace with God and the forgiveness of our sins. The same passage says that we are sealed with the Spirit. That means that God literally takes up residence in you and I. Why? So he can transform us into the nature that Jesus has. And it also serves as a deposit, this beautiful and gentle reminder that we belong to God. No, no matter how often we push against God, how many times we try and go astray, he's reeling us back in. His spirit is constantly reminding us that we belong to him. The passage literally says at one point, Paul just writes, you have every spiritual blessing in Christ. Literally, every spiritual blessing that God could give you in Jesus, boom, it's yours. 
So it's like you have all of it. I, there's no way for us to even begin to wrap our mind or our heart around the depth and the glory of what that means for you and I. Romans 8, 31 through uh, 39 talks about, it's one of my favorite passages in all the Bible. Paul talks about the reality that there is nothing that can separate you from the love of God. Nothing in heaven, nothing in earth, not even life, not even death. Nothing can separate you from the love that God has for you in Christ. Not even your own sin and your own rebellion, not your skepticism, not your doubt, not your fears, nothing. If you're here last week, Rob gave uh, this beautiful summary of how we're freed from the penalty of our sin when he was talking about the day of the Lord. You've been freed from the penalty of all your sins. And, and Rob did this amazing job of talking about the fact that the day of the Lord means that at the cross, all your sins were judged. All your sins that you've committed in the past. All the sins that you committed this morning. All the sins that you're going to commit when you leave church today. All the sins that you commit for the rest of your life. You're free from the penalty of those. You're free from the power of sin. Romans 6 says that the power of sin no longer treats you like a slave, but now you're a slave to God. You're free to grow in righteousness and grace. We're no longer the spiritual walking dead, just walking around doing whatever our selfish desires want us to do. Almost unbelievably, when you read Revelation, we will live with God in heaven and we'll be freed from the presence of sin once and for all. 1 John 3 says that there will come a time when we will be with Christ and we will be like him. We will be full of glory and we will bear his image because we will be just like him. We won't even deal with sin anymore. So the real question is, what more could God give you? What more could God give us that we don't have? What could he give us that we don't already have? What more could you want that you don't possess? What could this world give you that you don't have? The reality is, is that we cannot approach the question of stewardship from a standpoint of wondering what we can afford to give. But when we approach it from the standpoint of what don't I have that I already, or what don't I have that I already, that God's already given me, it rearranges the entire conversation. If there's anything that I want us to walk away from is that whatever you give pales in comparison to what God's given you. So you don't have to do it by guilt. You don't have to feel guilty about whatever your decision is. You don't have to feel compelled. You can just think about it from the riches that you already possess in God. And that leads us to the third point, that God's generosity frees us to be generous. Uh, I have good news and I have super great news. The good news is, is that uh, there's no law in Scripture that says you've got to tithe. I don't know if you know that. Do you get, is that news to anybody? There's no law in the New Testament about tithing. Nobody has to tithe anything here. Isn't that great? The better news is that you get to give everything to God now that we're free. Everything. Your money, your time, your talents, your worship, uh, your praise, uh, your heart, your thoughts, your prayers, all of it. You get to give all of it to God. He frees you to give everything. We only do that in light of God's overwhelming kindness and generosity to us. Uh, 
you and I are called as stewards to rethink how we use our gifts, our time, and our talents. And we do that only as a means to communicate our gratitude. So, and what's the most compelling testimony that you've experienced from other Christians, whether it was from before you were a Christian or even as a Christian? It's the grateful Christian, right? Who has the most compelling testimony, the most effect on you usually? Is it the guy who compels you to do things? Or is it the woman or the man who just says, man, I am so grateful for what Jesus has done for me. I just got to share this with you. I just, I want you to experience this with me. It's that generosity that's born out of gratitude that transforms us as givers, right? And it comes from hearts that have seen and experienced God's mercy and kindness to us. And it comes out of uh, what God's given to you and I. So it comes out of a place of gratitude. And that gratitude becomes the generator, the power generator for our giving. You know, Janie and I, um, anybody that knows us knows that we, uh, we love our kids. And if you've met our son, Jack, he's like, the kid is just so much fun to be around. He's one of those abnormal kids. He doesn't fuss. He doesn't cry much. Um, he seems to always be in a good mood, which is not, he's not like his parents in that respect. Um, and we, you know, we love our kids so much. We're, it's really kind of silly. Sometimes what we'll do is we'll sit with the kids and watch them. They have such a sweet connection with each other. And then we'll put them to bed and we'll literally sit on the couch and look at pictures of our kids after we put our kids to bed. <laughs> I feel like Nisa and Rob have always been like this too. Like every vacation, they're like, we're taking the kids um, because they love their children, right? As much as I love you guys, I could not imagine, I could not even wrap my mind around the thought of giving one of my kids for you. I just could never do that. I couldn't. And if I'm honest, I wouldn't. I don't have it in me. But God loves you that much that he took his most treasured son and laid him right out for you. And when we think about that, it liberates us to give all kinds of stuff it's no longer about 10% or time or what. It's no longer about any of that. It frees us to be like, how much can I give so other people can experience the beauty of that gift that God's given me? So just as some application points in response to that. Uh, how can we grow in the practice, practicing spiritual disciplines uh, of gratitude and generosity as a response to God? How do we treat those as spiritual disciplines and responses of gratitude for what God's given us? Uh, first, a question. Are you a grateful person? Me, it's 50-50. Talk about gambling. Man, that's a roll of the dice with me. It's, if I'm honest, you know. Some days I feel super grateful. If I'm not keeping my eye on what God's given me, could go either way, you know, especially in the first five minutes when I wake up. Uh, do you take regular stock of all that God's given you in your life? Do you practice an attitude of gratitude? It's one of the most important things I learned early in my recovery is writing a gratitude list. Uh, Jenny will tell you, when I was first sober, the first guy that mentored me, he said, I want you to do, I was super angry, super ungrateful. He said, I want you to do two things every morning, Brian. I want you to wake up, make your bed, and then say a quick prayer. 26 years later, you know what I do? The first thing when I wake up, I make my bed and I say a prayer. And that way I have two things I can be grateful for. I've acknowledged God and I made my bed. 
No matter else what happens in the day, I have those two things that I could be grateful for. Do you practice an attitude of gratitude in your life, whatever that looks like? Do you take stock of what God's given you? Uh, if not, what makes that difficult for you? There's very real reasons that we can be challenged by those things. Uh, maybe it's fear. A lot of us struggle with this. A lot of us have gone through a lot of our lives uh, not having a lot of what we need. That's very real. That's very valid. So maybe you struggle with the fear that if you give some of what you have, you won't have what you need. For some of us, it's a question of, of doubt. It's a question of our faith growing. We doubt that we can give God what he asks us to give, whatever that is, and we'll still be satisfied and happy with what he leaves us. That's just a question of our faith. Uh, a, couple of, a couple of application points for us to think about in response to those questions. First, God's generosity produces grateful givers. You know, that practice makes gratitude a way of life for you and I. Uh, 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 15 talks about uh, cheerful giving. And, uh, and Paul says in that passage, he says, each one of us must give as he has decided in his heart. And uh, what he's saying basically is that an ungrateful heart doesn't decide to give much. If we're ungrateful, we're really not in the mood to give much. Am I right? I mean, when I'm, when I'm busy raging against God, raging against you, raging against the world, there's no space in my heart to be like, I'm gonna stop and give something, help other people. There's just no bandwidth for it. But in this passage, Paul gives this great example of encouraging the Corinthians to give and to continue giving, and that in that, they will offer up this act of worship to God that will cause other people to be grateful and worship God as well. And so he says, give cheerfully. What that also means is that if you're giving under compulsion, God doesn't want it. And I could tell you as a church, if you're coming here and tithing or you're serving under compulsion, we don't want you to. We don't want one dollar that's given out of compulsion. What, more importantly, what we'd love for you to do is to bring that to God, to put his faithful promises to the test and to ask him, help me to see why this is a difficulty for me. Because that's God's sweet promise to you. He wants you to be free of those things that hinder you from living in that freedom of being generous. He wants you to experience the freedom and the wholeness that comes from that. Uh, when I first got sober, I got a job. At my first job was TGI Fridays. And uh, this is going to date me a bit, but I went to the interview with a guy. I was locked up for a year. I went to a long-term treatment facility. I got out. This is like the second job I applied for. And the general manager sent me down for an interview. And he said, Brian, we're going to offer you a job. And I was like, I can't believe they're doing this. And uh, minimum wage at the time was $4.25 an hour. And uh, he said, Brian, we're going to start you at $6.25. I literally fell out of the chair. I was gushing over this man for $6.25 an hour. I was like, I can't believe that. Thank you so much. I'm going to work so hard for you. You're never going to regret this decision. You would think he just made me the president of the United States. I was gushing over this. So much so he was like, okay, settle down. <laughs> You're just going to be a line cook, all right? Relax. <laughs> it was the first time in my life I was so grateful for that $6.25 an hour, you guys. I was so grateful. Uh, 
and it was a genuine act of generosity to me. That's how I experienced it. It was the first time in my life that something transformed how I viewed money, how I viewed a work ethic, how I viewed giving of myself, my time, my treasures, my talents to a job. I worked so hard at that job because I, I was grateful for what I had been given. Uh, God just simply wants us to do the same thing, to constantly recalibrate and marvel at what he's given us and to respond in gratitude as an act of worship. Uh, second, <clears throat> God's generosity produces generous givers. They're sacrificial in nature. You see that in Mark 12, the widow in the offering box is a beautiful example of that. Uh, this widow goes to the temple and she gives what very little she had because she was relying on God to meet her every need. Uh, the world is constantly going to tell you and I that we can uh, negotiate with God on what's reasonable to give him. That's, that's the worldview that we're constantly going to be fighting against as we walk out of here today, every day. And in that, there's this unconscious and almost, um, there's a sneaky way in which we live with an unconscious sense of pride and almost arrogance that we can negotiate with God. And so when we approach this question of tithing, we fall for the trap of being, look, I'm a reasonable guy. I love Jesus. I'm re Let's be reasonable, God. What's a reasonable amount of service I can give you? Let's talk it. Let's talk about numbers. What's a reasonable amount of tithing I can give you? I love you. I love God. I love your people. Let's work out a deal. It's not what God calls us to. He just calls us to marvel at what he's given us and then respond with genuine gratitude. That's what the widow does here. It frees us from that sense of entitlement we can fall into. frees us from the unconscious arrogance that we can begin to live with with our wealth and our finances. Uh, it helps us understand passages like Romans 12, 1 and 2. And that says that we present our lives, which are spiritual acts of worship in response to the mercies of God. So it helps us ask the question, what's too much to give? And when we think about what God's given us, nothing is. Nothing's unreasonable. It also helps us to do that from a place of gratitude. And that frees us to enjoy everything that God's given us. Amen. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you for uh, your kindness. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you for, um, we thank you for the, the depths and the riches of what you've given us in Jesus. Lord, I pray as we spend uh, the moments of our lives and the days of our lives and the, and, and the seasons of our lives that you've given us, that we would constantly be asking the question, on what we can give to communicate our gratitude for what you've done for us through your son and that we could be the type of people who are generous and uh, genuinely grateful and that that would be infectious and make other people want to know you and to know your son. And we thank you for the gift and the privilege and the responsibility of, of stewarding those things in our lives and we pray that you would help us to be wise and grateful givers. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. Please rise as we respond in gratitude to God in the song.